Welcome to Museum Archipelago. I'm Ian Elsner. Museum Archipelago is your audio guide through the landscape of museums. Each episode is never longer than 15 minutes. So let's get started. In the past three weeks, the New Orleans Committee to Erect Markers on the Slave Trade has put up two new markers in the city. One on the transatlantic slave trade along the moonwalk, and another on the domestic slave trade at the intersection of Esplanade Avenue and Charter Street. The two original co-chairs of this project are Freddie Williams Evans and Luther Gray. Hello, my name is Freddie Williams Evans. I am a historian, an independent scholar, and an arts ed consultant. My main focus is New Orleans history, particularly the history of Congo Square. Hello, my name is Luther Gray, co-founder of the Congo Square Preservation Society. I also work at the Ashe Cultural Arts Center with uh, coordinating community and cultural programs and I'm the band leader of Bambula 2000. We met in New Orleans in front of the transatlantic slave trade marker. This was the first time Evans had seen the marker in its permanent location since the project began in 2015. The Park Service tapped Luther and me as the co-chairs of this effort to bring the markers to New Orleans for the slave trade to Louisiana. Because of my background in history, my work on Congo Square and Africans in New Orleans, and Luther because of his activism and also work on Congo Square. And also Luther was the spearheader of the marker, the historic marker at Congo Square, which the Congo Square Preservation Society put up in 1997, so over 20 years ago. Until these other two historic markers were erected a few weeks ago, the Congo Square marker was one of the only places in downtown New Orleans acknowledging the city's slave trading past. Congo Square is a location uh, on Rampart Street. It's now within Louis Armstrong Park Complex. But that was where enslaved Africans gathered on Sunday afternoons for well over a century during the French, the Spanish, and the American periods. At the beginning of the city, enslaved people gathered at different locations. But in 1817, the city council, along with the mayor, determined that there would be one location. And we know that not from the documents, but from the fact that all of the references to the gatherings were to this one location. So in 1817, that became the sole location. In 1811, the largest slave revolt in North America took place in St. John, St. John Parish, and over 500 uh, enslaved Africans came off the plantations, and their the goal was to reach New Orleans and overthrow the government. They made it as far as Kenner, Louisiana, where they were met by troops. And so I think the, the preponderance of slave insurrections around the United States led to the mayor wanting to keep an eye on these gatherings. So these gatherings had police uh, there to observe what was going on. And I don't think it's a coincidence that that was 99 years after the founding of the city. So the city was preparing for the centennial in 1818. So it was in 1817 Congress where it became the sole location. And because of that, we have a lot of um, eyewitness reports. We have a lot of newspaper articles, a lot of documentation about those gatherings, what took place there, who the people were, what kind of musical instruments, and the influence of those gatherings on cultural practices in New Orleans as well as other places in the U.S. The two markers represent two different but overlapping eras in American history the international slave trade, and the domestic slave trade. New Orleans was a major center of both, as a coastal port city and as the biggest city along the Mississippi River. Yes, yeah, so this was in 1808. Congress banned, um, beginning January 1st, the international slave trade. So legally, 
all that was left was a domestic slave trade, which had already been in existence, we have to say that, but it increased dramatically. Louisiana, however, continued to smuggle people through the bayous and the backwaters, so we, we continued to have people brought in. But then it became the destination for the domestic slave trade, you know, as a, a uh, let's see, we call it an exchange place the port city and it was because many of the location it had already been established as a port city meaning right on the mississippi river and then when, when you when you fast forward to the domestic slave trade whereas here africans were being brought from africa straight into new orleans what happened in virginia they established a slave breeding organization they were breeding africans and so the very powerful people who lived in virginia controlled the government and they were the ones who stopped the transatlantic slave trade because they wanted to breed slaves and make money that not bring them from Africa. And so that, that, so then these companies from Virginia and Maryland set up shop in New Orleans and New Orleans became the, the capital of the domestic slave trade. And like, like you say, Africans were, were being brought here and sold into Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, because basically because of the, of the, of the, of the explosion of the popularity of cotton and sugarcane. They needed, they needed labor to work these fields. Many of them came from Virginia, Maryland, North Carolina, those we call upper south, upper southern states, shipped down to New Orleans, and it's not always shipped. Many of them walked by foot in those locations and then sent to points unknown. It could be Natchez was a, another major port, and from Natchez to other parts of Mississippi, but also to Georgia, Alabama. That was one of the the sayings was the dread was to be shipped down the river to Mississippi because who knows where you would have ended up. And one prime example was Solomon Northrop. You may have heard of the, the movie and the book 12 Years a Slave, who actually Solomon was a free man of color, but who was um, enslaved in Washington, D.C. area and then shipped down to New Orleans and then sold onto a plantation for 12 years in Louisiana. So he was an example of one who was able to write about what happened and there are untold millions who could not write about it. We don't know their stories, but we do know that New Orleans was a major port. Gray sees these historic markers as a continuation of his and others' efforts to preserve Congo Square. It's, it's been a, a lack of uh, documentation of African presence in New Orleans, even, even though Africa, uh, New Orleans is a predominantly African-American population. Of course, we, we were the place of many Confederate markers as well, and statues. So I think what, what really kind of propelled a lot of this work in the 1990s is that, we, you know, when we started to drum in Congo Square, we just really right away realized that there was no protection for Congo Square. It wasn't on the National Register of Historic Places. There was no markers there and things like that. So just by working with Freddie and Kalama Yasalam, people, uh, Jamila Peters Muhammad, all of us who kind of formed the, the Congo Square Preservation Society. We just became, in my case, I'm not a historian, I'm more of a musician and a drummer, but I think drummers are historians as well. So I, I think our first goal was to, was to get Congo Square on the National Register of Historic Places so we could start to, to tell this story. Because like you say, the Confederate story is already being told. Like you mentioned earlier that Oftentimes in the United States, museums tell the stories of, of uh, the people who, who oppressed other people in this country. So in New Orleans being probably the most African city in North America, our story is not only needs to be told, but it's right in front of us all the time. And we're still just touching the tip of the iceberg of this history. And I think that uh, as New Orleans is celebrating this tricentennial this year when the French arrived, 
we're looking at seven, uh, next year, 2019, being the tricentennial of Africans being brought here, the first two slave ships. Of course, Africans were here before that. So in other words, let, let us next year bring 15 million people to New Orleans to tell this story, to, to learn this history. Tell me more about the logistics of getting these markers put up. Who was involved and what was the process of erecting them in the relevant places? So Luther and I were tapped, as I said, in 2015. And then we went about, you know, searching or not really searching. We didn't have to search hard, but selecting and deciding who would be on. In addition to Guy Hughes, who was from the National Park Service, most people who were especially able to attend did come to the meetings and did support us. So we had uh, Leon Waters, who's a local historian and tour guide operator. There was Dr. Ibrahim Sect, who's actually a native of Senegal, but who has relocated here for the last maybe four or five years. And he is the managing director of the Whitney Plantation. And of course, Erin Greenwald, uh, a historian who was then at the Historic New Orleans Collection. She's now at NOMA, New Orleans Museum of Art. And Josh Rashman, who's from University of Alabama. Of course, he couldn't come to every meeting, but he was on Skype with us at every meeting. There was Joyce Miller, who's with the Louisiana State Museum. And Dr. Mitlow Hall, who is the author of Africans in Colonial Louisiana, who did groundbreaking work for us understanding the enslaved Africans who were first brought here, the ships, the names of the ships, the people who were aboard them. We first had to decide if we were going to go with the state, because there's a state process by which historic markers are put up. But those markers have certain guidelines. One is the pelican has to be at the top of the marker. We're, we, didn't, we didn't want the pelican on the top first. We didn't want the pelican. <laughs> the first thing was that we did not want the pelican. We said that if there would be any bird on the top, it would be the Sankofa bird. We uh, contracted with a, an artist, Steve Prince. Steve Prince, to design the bird. And you will see that it has the, the continent of Africa, the Sankofa bird, and the state of Louisiana meshed together. And the Sankofa bird, of course, means that we learn from the past. The bird has, has its hair turned back to remember and to remember the past and learn from it. So you would see the Sankofa bird on the transatlantic marker. And then on the domestic marker, we had images from buildings that were historic, that were actually there during that time period. Each one of those markers had a different process because the land that on which the um, transatlantic marker is sitting is governed by the Bucare Commission, but also the levy, some, I'll think of those terms. Yeah. That, but it was a very different process than the domestic slave trade, which is on the neutral ground. We call it the neutral ground in the middle of the street, and that's governed by the city of New Orleans. So it was easier to get permission to erect the market there than it was here. The national project affiliated with the local committee is called the Middle Passage Ceremonies and Port Markers Project, which encourages both ceremonies and markers. The New Orleans Committee to Erect Markers on the Slave Trade is now doing both. We are one of the few that had ceremonies for the people who crossed the Atlantic or who died en route across the Atlantic from Africa to the U.S., particularly Louisiana. New Orleans had the ceremony but not the marker, and now we're really happy that we have both. And the ceremony Luther would talk about more is called the Ma'afa. The Ma'afa is a key Swahili word that means great tragedy. And so on this, uh, during the 4th of July weekend, we meet at 7 o'clock in the morning in Congo Square, pour libations to our ancestors. Uh, we have ceremonies, libations, prayers, performances, and then we walk uh, walking procession from Congo Square through Treme, through the sites in the French Quarter of, of these, of these, of what the slave auction blocks were and things like that, and we end at the river. And so this is our 18th year, and so with these two new additions, our markers to, to the international domestic slave trade, we're going to change our route 
And that's going to be probably the unveiling of these markets for our city. And the reason we have like two to 300, 400 people who participate in this every year. So it's growing and it's part of a national uh, organization that are doing the same kind of work around the uh, East Coast and all throughout the South as well. And so I think that, that uh, the MAAF has been very instrumental to raising consciousness and giving some healing. It's about healing, you know. So when it's all said and done, we're not, we're like, we're honoring our ancestors and we're connecting to our ancestors because, you know, facing African religions, a lot of that is based on ancestry. And so when we can recall our ancestors' names, that means they're truly not forgotten. And uh, we can be inspired by what they, the things that they had to do to make it easier for us to do what we have to do. And then we'll, our responsibility is to make sure our children have it easier than we had. And so I think that the Ma'afa is a very important uh, commemoration that we do every year. And these markers will add to the importance and the significance of these uh, observances. This has been Museum Archipelago. We hope you enjoyed your visit. As you leave, consider becoming a member of Club Archipelago. In exchange, you'll get a members-only bonus podcast. This week, we visit Tsari Maligrad, a new museum complex in Bulgaria. You can join for $2 a month at patreon.com slash museumarchipelago. For more information or to submit feedback, go to museumarchipelago.com or museum underscore go on Twitter. Next time, bring a friend.